organizations get so insular and they have a hard time seeing outside their company. Even if you bring to the table wonderful case studies, examples of what other companies are doing, co companies they admire, that we still have, and this I think this goes back to human behavior, we don't want to see ourselves as terrible. And so when inherently you're coming to the table with change, that goes part and parcel with looking at something that you're not doing right or good enough. That perception of, I don't want to say attacking, but it's the, this could be better, insinuates that somebody failed somewhere. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines. I'm your host, Jenny Harold. In today's episode, we have a special guest who will unravel the complexities of OKRs and share invaluable insights on building buy-in and navigating organizational culture. Joining us is Andrea Belk Olson, a renowned expert in organizational change and author of multiple books on the subject. Here are a few things we talked about. The power of aspirations, customer centricity, and the six key components of driving change within an organization. Finally, we wrap up with our signature quick fire questions. Let's jump in. Super stoked. Our guest for today is a behavioral scientist, a differentiation strategist, a customer centricity expert, and author. She helps transform businesses by making them understand their customers better through differentiation and building customer-centric organizational cultures. She's a total change enabler. Let's welcome to the podcast, Andrea Belk Olson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, we're going to go ahead and kick things off with the most recent normal question I start asking people, what is your OKR's origin story? How did you get to know this methodology? I've learned of them in many different forms and shapes over the years. Multiple companies I've worked with and for use OKRs, but it's interesting enough, they actually label them all differently. So it's kind of learning different languages depending on where you're at and, and how you move along, which is convoluted and complicated and sometimes frustrating, but uh, yes, I've worked with them for many years. What do you think is the most interesting name you've heard them call to date? Oh gosh, I've, call, I've, I've heard objectives called goals. I've heard them called projects. I've heard them called like, you know, kind of aspirational targets. You know, it, it, the, the nomenclature just runs the gamut. Interessante. Okay. So the core of some of our discussion today is about differentiation. So some companies don't know what the core of their business is, which <laughs> should be like known. But anyway, mm -hmm. but that's what they find it hard to develop and grow, right? How do you help them? Where do you even start with this? The simplest way is that you need to do a current state assessment. It doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be robust, but you need to really basically understand what they do well today. You need to understand how they make money. You need to understand what the skill sets and talents are inside the organization. You need to understand what assets they have, whether that's technology, whether that's a product suite, service suite, and really understand the lay of the land currently before you move into what we want to be when we grow up concept. And that assessment usually gives you a good temperament of what is possible for the organization as they move forward. But the, the challenge is sometimes they think that their, their business is something, as you said, off-center to what they actually do. 
I really liked your example. You pitched it to me once and you were like, here's an example where someone took an aspirational statement to act as their goal. We're going to be the Tesla of whatever. Uh, can you tell me why or tell us why Like, this is not necessarily what you probably should start doing? Yeah, no, it's a great story. And I'll, I'll leave names out to protect the innocent. But uh, <laughs> one of our clients, and of course, you know, you think about decision making, you think about leadership, and there's a lot of different voices in the room. One of the higher up voices was talking about strategy and talking about where the organization's going in its next phase and generation of its growth. And they said, you know, we want to become the Tesla of the industry. And it sounds lovely and it sounds exciting. It sounds sexy, really. But the problem was, is that that organization in that current state assessment, their technology stack was incredibly weak. There's components, big components of what they do that are still on mainframes, number one. Number two is that organizationally, culturally, they have a very veteran team, people that have been there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. That would be the majority of the staff they have on hand. And so the problem is those folks haven't dealt with technology, seen technology in their everyday, they're using antiquated systems. And so to move from what would be their current state to this becoming Tesla of the industry is such a large leap. It's just too far afield that you're going to have to churn out so many people. You're going to have to ramp up so much. And that's the thing that organizations often don't understand is that it's not the things you get. It's not the, just the things you buy. It's all the people within the organization that are really key to change, no matter what your aspirational goal is. So let's put this into a framework because you mentioned to me, Jenny, differentiation models exist. Now we need to be able to get through this messy middle in a way that is plausible, possible, and advantageous to the business. Maybe if we can take this particular example of a client that says, we want to be the Tesla of our industry. Some aspects of this plausible, possible, and advantageous don't seem to align Maybe you can walk us through, if we were to think about it in this model, how we can actually create an aspirational statement for the business to get behind that actually can be accomplished. After that current state assessment, it's really having that deeper conversation. You've given them the lay of the land, right? This is where you're at. And there might be some feedback of agree, disagree, other areas to kind of include in that map. But really the big thing is then moving to looking at differentiators. You know, what is different about your business? It it became into play at some point in time, right? You've been successful for a period of time. You have to be doing something right. But when you're looking to make change, oftentimes the outside world gives you noise. There's all these tech companies that are growing. There's all these trends that are happening. And a lot of organizations want to react to that. And so sometimes they throw a dart at the wall and say, that's the thing we want to be because it's the shiny new object. Really what they need to do is step back and, and part of the process that we take is looking at differentiators and discussing their current differentiators and potential ones under three categories. You know, one is holistic. Like what are the things that you have, but competitors have as well? Number two is kind of comparative. What are those things that you have or do, but you do it notably better than the competitors and why? Not just kind of someone's opinion, not the sales team saying, oh, you know, we're better, we're nicer, we have better customer service. That's not really tangible. And then thirdly is unique. What do you actually have that only you have and no one else has? Even if it's 
in its infancy stage, right? Something that has potential or something that you're really strong at. And mapping those things out is really important to deciding what is that aspirational goal? What are the things that we can capitalize on? So let's talk about this idea of knowing what a company wants to be as one thing versus what it should be. Going back to the company that was the Tesla of the industry, it was a wonderful aspiration. But I mean, if we think about all the things we want, you know, I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I want to be Miss America, right? Some of these aspirations are just too far afield from the reality of what you have today in the organization and its current structure. So the challenge becomes, what can we do to move forward? And maybe it is in that direction, but it doesn't mean you have to achieve that goal. Those goals can change over time as the organization does. So this client who had you know, highly traditional organization, very conservative, a lot of highly manually done processes, they needed to shift their thinking and look at what their best differentiators were. And a big part of that was actually this kind of hands-on, highly personal element that was almost by nature built into the organization because of some of the traditional technologies and manual processes that they had. So it was a question of how can they look at their organization and say, can we find a very tight target market that really cares about this way that we do business and that they would pay a premium for that? And can we position ourselves around those needs and those things that they really, really want? And then on top of that, what can we do to then amplify that? What can we do to be the more high touch organization? We already have the foundation in place. So the idea was to pick a corner in the room, claim a stake in that corner and announce to the world that this is the corner that we've picked. Exactly. Got it. So... Let's talk about the people aspect of this, right? Because what you're talking about is change and change management is hard. I mean, there's all kinds of statistics that people can look up to showcase just how hard it is because most people claim failure. I think you have a very interesting point of view where change is not necessarily about the practices, the processes, or even the technology. It's about the people. Yeah. Can you talk about how people are key to the change, maybe even in light of this example that you gave of, we want to be the Tesla of the industry. You're like, wait a second, people, can we even do that? And walk us through. Sometimes you come into that conversation, you kind of sound like that Debbie Downer, right? Well, you know, this is not something that's realistic. And then people's inflated ideas get deflated and and they get a little frustrated with that. But the thing that organizations really get caught up in. And I like to call it as a selfie. They're so inward looking. They're looking at themselves and thinking about what they want as a company and not realizing that the entire organization, if you took all the people out, most of the time really couldn't operate without people. And those people have to be on board with something that really they feel that they can achieve right? That impacts their job in a positive way, that gives them opportunity for long-term growth, that really is something that is exciting. And so that buy-in doesn't come with just announcing that aspirational goal and saying, this is what we're doing. They're looking at it from a different lens. They're looking at it as, and, and we kind of touched on this a little earlier, was, you know, is this plausible? Is this something that 
you know, we can achieve as an organization, but can I achieve individually? Is this a threat to me? Uh, is this going to be asking for skill sets that I don't have and put my job in jeopardy? Two is that, is it possible? Is it reasonable? Is this something that's going to happen in my lifetime in this organization? Or is this something that's 10, 20, 30 years out, like we were saying, become the Tesla of the industry? All those employees that were there that have 10, 20, 30 years of tenure, they're not going to see that goal achieved, right? They're going to be in that growth track of it and not really get to see the benefits of that goal. And then thirdly, is it advantageous? Is it advantageous for me individually? Is there an opportunity here that helps me grow in the organization? So it becomes something that's very personal. It becomes something that these changes have to have a context around it. They have to understand that, yes, it's for the company, but what does it mean to me? The WIFM, what's in it for me? Got it. So when we think about, let's say that the organizational leadership got the Debbie Downer consultant, as it were, (laughs) you worked with them and you're like, okay, so let's say that that's great, but what would be, in fact, plausible, possible, and advantageous thinking about the current employee base and potentially what kind of skill sets you're going to have to buy your way into? Let's say the vision was set. How do you navigate after that? Well, you know, you kind of, you, you take that high level concept and, and maybe everybody has some initial buy-in. Those executives sitting around the table in their minds are processing, that sounds like it could work. And what they're doing is ticking through, how does this impact my area? How does this impact my team? Do I think it's executable? They, they're, they're going through that immediately and quickly in their minds right at that moment. But as an organization, that group needs to step back and look at, the three core areas of impact that even if you're mentally on board and you're like, great, let's go. Because a lot of organizations we work with claim that they're incredibly good at execution. And what that really translates to is they're out of the gate. You give them an idea and it's like, oh, let's go without, without a plan, without a structure, without you know, sometimes even communicating to different departments. They're just off and running. So it's important to step back and look at the big picture and say, okay, what are the three areas of impact that this potential vision change is going to to influence? And the first one is culturally, right? So what do we need inside our organization or what would we have to change in regards to organizational behaviors, mindsets, skill sets? What do we have that's good that's working today? What do we have that's bad that's going to need to change? Number two is, and mo- to me, because I'm big passion- very passionate about this, is customer impact. You know, what, do, what would existing customers have to change in their behaviors, mindsets, and skills? And you know, what's good about that? What's bad about that? What are we asking them to do? And if we can diminish that or actually, in this case, leverage what they already are doing and wanting is even better. And then number three is that latency impact. What are we going to sacrifice What's going to happen when this change happens? What are we leaving behind? And is that good or bad? Do you have an example of uh, maybe a client that you've worked with where they address these fairly well? Can you tell us a story? I'll use the same example just because we can keep it consistent here. They assessed all those things. And actually, because of that aspirational goal, that position that they, they ended up choosing, there was really only marginal tweaking that had to happen. So in regards to customer impact, the premise was 
we're going to take what we do today and amplify it to be even better, even deeper, even more customer centric. And so all the old projects and ideas and things that the frontline folks had that had been on a list of uh, actually a list of 300 projects that had just been sitting there churning forever, never getting done. They couldn't prioritize it. They didn't have a focus. So now it was we could look and say, what are these things out of this list that we can focus on that amplifies this customer centricity focus? Because the organization had been asking for it. The people that interacted with customers really wanted it. And that's why they put those ideas on the list because they really cared about differentiating and better customer experience. So that was huge. Latency, the challenge was that, again, they had been very internally focused and very product focused, meaning they're looking at features, they're looking at competitors. We need, it's the, we need this too type of mentality. That was a big hard shift for uh, certain aspects of the organization, uh, especially, you know, legal product development where those are their babies and they're not looking at it from a customer lens. So for them, that was a, a big behavior and mindset shift of thinking about, okay, we want this, but why do we want this? And looking at why would a customer want it and pushing those people out to talk to existing customers, potential customers and getting their feedback so they could make a product that was a lot more oriented towards those small, tiny things that maybe would limit adoption and have them take care of those up front. And then culturally, it was actually, you know, the majority of folks really took to the idea quickly. So it was lucky in that regard because they had already been very customer centric. So that current state assessment and looking at what you're doing good and what you can capitalize on was kind of key to making that second stage of the process a lot easier. So you've been mentioning customer centricity quite a bit. This has been around for some time now. What's your definition of customer centricity? Customer centricity, a, a lot of organizations we work with, I mean, the first question, the first answer you actually get when you say, are you customer centric? You say, of course, why would we be otherwise? We answer our customers' calls and we respond to their emails. And if they reach out, we react. But customer centricity is really moving the organization in its entirety to thinking about how is this part in shaping the customer experience? How is this really benefiting the customer in what they're trying to achieve, whether it's a need, whether it's solving a problem, and that goes holistically through the entire organization. So sometimes, and, and very traditionally, companies say customer centricity is only those customer facing areas, but it's about changing your operations. It's changing about how you think, it's changing about what you produce and how you produce it, how you communicate. So I think it's much more pervasive than what companies traditionally believe. So let's say that a company is all in and they're like, all right, even our back office functions are going to be customer centric now. How can an organization be thinking about their customer needs better, more emphatically? I think you've mentioned something about the three W's ideation process. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, it's in my most recent book called What to Ask. And it's really about shifting a mindset. It is not a recipe for 
immediately producing an answer, but it's about shifting your organization's thinking and behaviors into that customer-centric mode. So as you mentioned, there's three parts. There's why, what, and wow. The why is really examining what context the customer is in. So let's say you're, you're waiting in line for a coffee. Um, you say, okay, well, you know, we're going to get your coffee as quick as possible. But if that context is you're running late, let's say, your behavior as a customer and your needs as a customer shift a little bit, right? And what could that organization do to say, hey, there's people that are on a tight time frame. They maybe don't have time to wait in a queue that's 10 people long. And so there's things nowadays that come out where you, you order online and you pick it up and it's in an area. So these are all customer-centric things that change the operation, but you have to start thinking about the context of the customer. Second is the what. So given that context, what would your customer need? And, and the example with the coffee shop is that you have pre-orders or you have something that maybe is a subscription model where it's like, it's going to be there every day, Monday through Friday for you at this time. So those are the types of things you can develop. And then the wow is really your hypothesis. So you look at those whys and whats and you say, okay, if this is the case, we're going to write a hypothesis that says maybe we have developed an online ordering process or a pre-order process or a subscription process in this scenario. And then you, you pilot it. You test that with customers to see if that really solves and addresses that context, that challenge that they have. If we were to weave back to the example that you provided earlier, where this manual processed organization with an older workforce decided that they were going to change because they needed to, they saw the need in the market. How did it look when they applied the three W's in their context? So for them, one of the big things, they actually have a department that focuses on giving back to the community. There's a portion of their business that that's what they do. And part of it's for customers and part of it's for those customers, individual communities, and then to an extent, greater society, but not as much. So it was taking an examination first of what they have today. It's always a really good first step to know the current lay of the land. And then looking at each of those offerings or services and saying, okay, as a customer, and for them, it was it's, it's younger families with children. Think about the context of, a, of let's say it's a, it's a volunteer event, let's just say. say. Okay, so what are the limitations that a parent may have? Like, well, I have to wrangle my kids. I have to get them all there. It has to fit in a schedule. I want to make sure that it's at a education level or experience level that's suitable to the age of my child. Um, you know, maybe it's something that I want to make sure there's not a lot of cleanup afterwards, like if it was you know, kind of a paint, you know, event or something like that. And then... You need to say, okay, so given that context, and this I'm kind of encapsulating it here at a high level, but given that context, so what would we need to change about this to make it more applicable to those contexts? And so it's like, maybe we have cleanup stations, or maybe we have it mobile where like it comes to them or comes to their neighborhood instead of having all these people come to one location. So you start thinking about it in a different way. Uh, and then what they, they did is developed a hypothesis of, Maybe we can change this activity in these ways to suit that need and then piloted it. So they actually had an event where they changed a few things. They got those customers feedback that, that participated and really found that their participation rates went up 300% because 
Yeah, because of those changes. So it's very, you know, it's like two, 290 something, but it was really just a test. And then you can say, all right, is this now, now should we scale this? So it's a very fundamental thing, but the intent is that you need to look at that bigger customer context. You need to think about that situation and then look at what could you change to make that situation easier, faster, simpler, more convenient, whatever the challenges that that target audience has. Well, I think this is a great segue into OKRs. Yes. Right. So let's talk about that. Since you had mentioned it was 290 or something, they, they saw the hypothesis worked out. How does OKRs fit into the conversation that you're talking about? Customer centricity, we've talked about differentiation, we've talked about even changing and transforming a business based on a pivot in vision. Where do OKRs fit in? You know, OKRs, I think, fit in in a variety of ways. So they can fit in at a very high level. So when we're talking about aspirational goals, I think those objectives really need to be those stepping stones. It's something that helps make that change digestible. So if you say, hey, we're going to be the test of the industry, go. A, I don't have a framework for how to get there. B, I don't see that as achievable because it's so far away. And then three, I'm not understanding the, to me, the compounding element of what OKRs can be. So I'm going from this objective to then feeds the next objective, the next objective. So I think it's, it's critical. Now, when you have that framework, now you can dive and take one of those objectives and say, okay, we're going to apply the three W's here. We're going to look at a segment of customers or a subset and start looking into what their challenges are and then cross compare that to what we're doing today. So it might be an enhancement to an existing product offering service, or it might be something completely new that you don't have, but it still ties to that objective. We're going to take a short break. You are listening to Dreams with Deadlines, the podcast that brings you real stories of trials and victories in business, brought to you by Quantiv. Quantive is a strategy execution platform that helps organizations create greater strategic agility and excel at execution. With more than 2,000 customers, Quantive helps companies close the gap between strategy and execution to achieve their best possible. And now, back to the show. You've worked with many traditional manufacturers who inherently resist change, right? Uh, it's really difficult, I can imagine, because you're asking an organization to be ambidextrous. On the one hand, you have to be very efficient and effective in the things that you already have, the core business. But we also know that if you aren't growing or to some degree transforming and changing to adapt to the new times and the new needs of our customer base or even new customer segments, you're going to die. How do we integrate both of these ideas? You know, manufacturers are a great example because their success is based on output. Their success is based on consistency. Their success is based on productivity. So change inherently in those organizations is disruptive, right? To those three things, you know, so it, it's almost fights back consistently with those three principles. Early in the 80s and maybe in the early 90s as well, they tried change and they had this terrible taste in their mouth. So, you know, usually it was really around technology. You know, we're going to put in an ERP system. We're going to put in some huge technology that's going to streamline everything and make it faster. And that, for lack of a better word, birthing process 
was exhausting, terrible. It disrupted everything. The issue is they don't want to do that again. Anything that's going to really cause frustration and impact that productivity, that consistency, they're going to shy away from. So I think that the challenge becomes two parts. One is really understanding what the problem is. I think in any change, there's a lot of people that have ideas of what should be done, but they really haven't applied first principles thinking and established what is the core problem. They look at the symptoms, they don't look at the actual cause. And it's a lot easier to treat the symptoms than to treat the cause oftentimes. Second is that these organizations, even if they've identified that root cause, the big change can be daunting. And so they need to look at that in very small bites. It needs to be something that's digestible for the organization. That's why it goes back to getting a mindset of continuous improvement, you know, looking at, you know, if you think about cleaning your house, like you could set aside a month and go through every single thing and audit everything. And, and maybe you get everything done, you get everything fixed and clean, or what you could do and a very simple way to do it is every time you walk through a room, pick up something every day, you say, I've got a very small project. I'm going to fix this outlet. I'm going to change this switch. And over a longer period of time, it's less, disruptive, and you still get the same outcome. So you have to really weigh what is important to be an upheaval, upending change. And if it's mission critical, only if it's truly necessary. And what can you do in the sense that is a lot more smaller and digestible so people get used to the concept of change happening all the time? Change happening all the time, kind of Kaizen-esque, it sounds like. Yes manufacturing, it's, they are mostly into Kaizen, but they like to cherry pick what they like to use. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so let's talk about integrating changes. Uh, you mentioned to me before that there are really six buy-in components that organizations and leaders in particular should be hyper-focused on. Can you talk us through what those six components are? Yeah. So when we're, we're talking about change, Sometimes it's the change itself. Sometimes it's the messenger. Sometimes it's the people and culture and the architecture of who's making the decision on the change and who it impacts and really the significance of the change. So we look at it as the six key elements of really building buy-in starts with legitimacy. And that comes with who is sending the message, who is influencing the message, and who is part of getting that to the front line. So that can be Traditionally, you think if it's a, a message about change is coming from the CEO, it's coming from the C-suite, but there are other people involved, people that are mid-managers, people that are frontline managers that maybe have a huge amount of respect and influence with their team. And if they're sending that message to their team, there's a level of trust that you can't replicate somewhere else. So when you're talking about communicating change and the legitimacy of that change, you need those informal influencers on board. Andrea, how do you find those people? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I would argue if you don't know who they are, you've got a problem. <laughs> you've got a huge problem, right? If you don't know who is making, helping make, have the sausage get made in your organization, you don't know your organization. You need to actually go around and talk to 
all your employees, you will find a common thread very quickly. You will find out who are the people that are those informal influencers and who are the ones that actually get work done. Um, not just the ones that kind of present it in the right way and, and talk the right way to the C-suite. You'll know who they are, but you have to get into the weeds with them. Got it. So the number two is, is ownership. And this is a big thing that organizations, I think, get wrong is that that change will come from the top down and say, thou shalt, this is what we will be doing. And not letting those people that have to deal with the day-to-day -day have a level of ownership, have a table stake in that change. Part of it needs to be those kind of, what I was talking about was those, those tiered objectives, those microbytes. Can they be involved in developing those OKRs, those steps to that aspirational goal? Because then they have a level of ownership to it. Um, they have a level of participation. They feel heard. And some of the issues, changes, challenges that they have are incredibly legitimate. And people to C-suite don't see those day-to-day -day issues. So ownership is incredibly important in giving them uh, a stake there. Number three is attainability. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about multiple steps towards that aspirational goal, those kind of interim OKRs. Let's break that change into digestible bites. If it looks too far afield, becoming the test of the industry, people will dismiss that idea out of the gate. They'll be like, we can't do that. There's no way that's going to happen. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. So you need to break that idea into micro changes. What are the key steps to get there? What are those big milestones that we have to achieve? And then what are our objectives within that? Number four is authenticity. So if we talk about being the test of the industry, and then I'll kind of go back to my, my client's situation. Let's say they announced this. And let's say everybody said, all right, fine. I guess that's what we're doing. But then proceeded to follow their same patterns of, for big meetings, and this is true, putting together big three ring binders with paper to discuss things, printing out PowerPoints, printing out documents, and having discussions like that. So it's <laughs> that authenticity needs to reflect in, if you wanna do this, your behaviors are gonna to have to start changing. You're gonna to have to send a PDF now. You're gonna to have to actually understand what a PDF is and how to make a PDF. So that kind of goes back to the becoming the test of the industry was not really plausible. Number five is impartiality. So a big part of that change process, you need to have people involved, whether it's internal or a third party external, be a neutral facilitator. Because when you're building those stepping stones to that aspirational goal, you're building the OKRs underneath that, you need to have somebody that doesn't have a secondary agenda, a department head, naturally is going to have a preference for their own team and their own team's opinion. So you need somebody in there that is looking at this as this is what we're trying to achieve. I have no hidden agenda. I want to hear everyone's voices and make sure everyone's voice is heard. And then number six is relevance. So a lot of times change is so big and lofty like this becoming the test of the industry that the today changes, the broken things that need to be fixed, are discarded. And so all those people have to deal with those latent problems that have been sitting there forever. And they're clearly not going to get addressed now because we're going to go become the test of the industry. You have to look at those latent issues and changes and figure out a way to tie those into this big aspirational goal. You have to say, all right, if we have 27 problems here, 
can we take 15 of them and tie it into this objective, into this milestone? Can we address both sides? Because it's important to not pretend like there are no problems in the organization and that there's nothing else we have to do. If we just make this big goal happen, everything will be fine. The frontline people, middle management, they know it's not that easy. And all they see is that this is going to be a lot more work for them, plus dealing with those latent problems. So, you know, relevance in what that goal has to do with today's problems, making that tie is incredibly important. Okay. Maybe then we can deep dive into OKRs. But as a recap, the six buying components, legitimacy, ownership, attainability, authenticity, impartiality, and relevance. If we were to think about that and put our OKR hat on, let's talk about the balance because you had mentioned, Jenny, relevance. What if there are latent things and people will resist change because they're hearing to themselves, oh, wait, so not only are you saying we're going to be the Tesla of the industry, but I also have to keep the lights on. And these are the things that I have to do to keep the lights on. What do I do with all of those things? How do they balance these aspirational goals where thou shalt say, we are Tesla, let's go. And there are still things that the business needs to do to keep the lights on. Business as usual things, things that they have committed to. How do, how do we balance this committed and aspirational aspect of goal development? When you kind of have everything narrowed down and you've got those big milestones, and now you're saying, okay, we need to establish OKRs to really move this forward, right? We need to have those stepping stones to say, we've achieved this milestone. And that has to be broken into smaller bits, so on and so forth. That you need to really look at framing those objectives, not just what you want to achieve, but through the lens of buy-in. Everybody wants to get to action. Everybody wants to get result, But you have to still consider you're always going to be working on building buy-in. Even if someone's nodding their head and they say, okay, that doesn't mean they're sold. It's a journey and you have to keep pushing and bringing them along on that journey until you see them advocating to others. That's the trick. That's the lever. So when you start building your OKRs and you say, okay, we need to look at, look at three core things. One is for objectives, you want to tie those objectives to, again, those known challenges, relevance to what's going on to keep the lights on and what are those issues that they're dealing with day to day. Second is tying them to things that everyone can influence. So that goes back to ownership, right? Listening and understanding, you know, what are those things that we can actually achieve that addresses a today issue, that addresses what we want to actually get done, as well as giving them a say of how that happens. You know, what is the importance level of each of these things? And, and keep in mind that, you know, this is your audience, right? The, the company is amorphous sense is not your audience. It's those people that are involved day to day. But then if we're looking at, let's say, key results to support that, we need to look at again, when we're talking about buy-in, because that's the whole foundation of all of this, we need to kind of think about painting a picture, telling a story of what those key objectives could actually really result in, right? And help them visualize that and then draw that path. They need to be able to internalize 
those changes in a way that makes sense to them. And you're going to have a lot of dialogue. You're going to have a lot of feedback and pushback. But I'd say the key to that is to making things to even smaller bites, right? If people say, oh, we can't do that, let's cut that in half and cut that in half because you can have a lot of those pieces. Uh, and then, of course, the other element to buy-in in regards to key results is let's build momentum. And that ties back to giving people quick wins, right? Generating positive momentum, right? If you have an objective or, or a, a milestone that is six months away, eight months away, that people get inertia. They lose that fire. So you want to break things down into results that you like, we could do that today. And some of the things we did with our Tesla of the industry client, they had all these changes to those customer-centric programs, right? Those customer family community programs. We said, okay, let's look at all of this. What are, what are things we could change literally today? Literally within a week, could we change? And there were some things that were, let's say, uh, let's say it was a, a matching donation. It's like, oh, well, we could change the threshold on that to be a lot higher. That would be easy. Well, then let's do that. Let's build some success here really quickly to help people understand that change can happen and that that objective is achievable. And then that milestone is achievable. So they see the compounding aspect of their work. Wow. Okay. So in your worldview then, because a lot of times OKRs are set on an annual basis for, you know, by the end of the year, the company needs to be here. And that compounding effects happens on like a, a nested cycle of a quarter or four months as an example. It sounds like you are talking about going like microdosing it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with terminology. Company X can say objectives are this and they're quarterly or they're annually. Someone else might say, oh, those are goals. We're going to have objectives underneath that. Or someone else will say, well, those are, those are outputs and they're big and they're long and they're slow. To me, Pick your pick the nomenclature that works for your company. Uh, it'd be nice to have everyone on the same page across every organization using the same terminology, but that's not going to happen today. However you want to frame it, you need to microdose that. So if you do have what, what maybe you want to call a milestone, a mile marker, uh, a big rock, it doesn't matter to me. But you have to have those OKRs, a lot of those OKRs underneath it. And it doesn't mean that you can't build some of those in real time, right? As long as they're going back to that big pillar, that, that milestone, big rock, whatever you want to call it, maybe it is an objective, right? And you use that framework and then you call those microdoses something else, but that's what's going to build that momentum. So the idea is, do you know our priorities and can you measure it? And are we seeing some sort of forward momentum toward the big thing in this case, let's be the Tesla of our industry. Like, are we making meaningful progress in that vector? Right. Because sometimes those big objectives, you don't see that forward progress. It's like a slow moving boat. You're not going to see it. And people will get to that quarter and desperately try to measure it because they don't have those microdoses in place. So let's kind of throw something out there. So it is about telling that story, drawing the path to it. I'm going to ask kind of a curveball question here. We have been talking about buy-in for some time and, you know, that people are just instrumental to change. When we're microdosing, 
people are, are seeing these wins. They're posting the Ws, right? In this case, the 290% increase, almost 300%. That's amazing. What are your recommendations to really land the message that they're doing a great job, we should keep going? Because I hear often, we're really good at reflecting on why we suck, but we're not really great on doing reflections, capturing the quick wins, generating that momentum, and telling people that we did a great job, and here's how we're recognizing people as a result. What are some of the the pieces of advice you can offer for organizations that are really keen on pointing out all of the not so great and not so good at being like, you know what, we did a good job. I'm going to give you two parts to that. The first part is you need to really examine your organizational culture first. And I'm not saying like a big study, but I'm just saying be realistic. If you have an organization that's, let's say, highly negative, highly focused on the failures, you have to understand why that is. And usually it's some historical baggage that occurred. Someone did something good. They elevated it. They escalated it. They exalted it. And then something went wrong. So now it's a behavior issue where it's like, oh, don't do that because you're going to be eating crow, right? So you first have to know that lay of the land before you, you think about how that gets messaged and how that behavior starts to change. Two is that you're going to need top leadership on board, right? You're going to need to have all those influencers on board of, you know, this is the new way of how we want to start shifting our culture. Uh, but most importantly is it's about two parts. It's about telling the story. It's not saying, look, we had 300% because another department, let's say, did their kind of pilot test and they only got, they actually lost or, or their, their outcomes were not stellar. So then people start comparing performance based on these numbers, these outcomes that are amazing. And usually companies only exalt the super, super great ones, not the incremental ones. So it's about telling the story of how you got there, but more importantly, focusing on what was learned. And that can be stories of, hey, we did this. It didn't turn out as super awesome, but this is what we know. So the organization is always learning. We're talking about always change. We're talking about always learning. And then lastly, it's really about taking a look at what these folks can do to take that knowledge and use it for themselves. It's not talking about just outcomes and like, look at this is stellar. Susie did this. She's great. It's again, what we did, what we learned, and then how you can use that. And so it's really about sharing and collaboration of that knowledge and excitement and not just focusing on those outcome numbers. What is the best example you've seen to date of an organization that is incentivizing that kind of behavior? To be honest, none. Mm, sad. To be honest, none. They will attempt to, but it's usually cherry-picked. It's usually based on those lofty numbers, wonderful over the moon successes. They will hide problems or they will do things that are for show. So that might be things in the, and I don't want to go down this path, but like in the DEI space, that is really surface and not actual deeper things. 
or ESG space where they'll exalt certain things that they feel are good, but not explain how they got there, what the, com the commitment was and what another department could do to enhance that. So it becomes, it's a little siloed territorial and it's by nature, right? Organizations are political. People are competing for money. They're competing for resources. They're competing for attention. And it's not really as collaborative as we'd like it to be. But I think that goes back to reinforcing the right behaviors, rewarding the right behaviors and mindsets. And that means as leaders, we have to walk that talk, right? We can't just say it and go back to our office and, and hope that the outcome is what we want to see. Noted. We're going to go into quick fire questions. You ready? Sure. So the name of this podcast is Dreams with Deadlines. What is Andrea's dream with the deadline? Uh, you know, going back to dream, I would say book number four. Mm. The deadline is at this point in my lifetime. <laughs> deadline, right? It's just a deadline. But I think the challenge is I can throw a deadline out there, but until that idea has solidified, the deadline will keep moving. So you kind of say, you know, I don't want to say morbidly, but it's like, you know, do I want to do this before I die? Yes. And are you consciously thinking about that you know, consistently? Yes. Okay. Then at, at some point in time, you need to kind of tick that, that next microdose of, do you have a list of ideas? Yes. Okay. Then let's assess those ideas. And that is progress towards that dream. Second question. So you've talked a lot about differentiation. We've talked about wanting to be the Teslas of our industry and how are we going to make these changes actually approachable and also customer centricity. What is kind of the prevailing, huh, I've been working on this for a long time, but it's not until now that I realized fill in the blank. What's kind of the, the insight of the moment? That's, that is an excellent question. And I'm not saying that to delay my answer because I was just thinking about that before we, we started talking was the big aha is two things. One is that internally centric perspective that organizations have. All the things that we talked about, customer centricity, et cetera, et cetera, differentiation. Organizations get so insular and they have a hard time seeing outside their company. Even if you bring to the table wonderful case studies, examples of what other companies are doing, co companies they admire that we still have. And this, I think this goes back to human behavior. We don't want to see ourselves as terrible. And so when inherently you're coming to the table with change, that goes part and parcel with looking at something that you're not doing right or good enough. That perception of, I don't want to say attacking, but it's the, this could be better, insinuates that somebody failed somewhere. And so it, I, I've seen that even if you package it this way, that way, the other way, it's a very sensitive thing to balance the idea of change and that self-esteem perception that the organization desperately wants to maintain. And they should. We all have to have good self-esteem to move forward and do something different. But there is a hypersensitivity in that amorphous group that as soon as you say, well, we could do this better or this isn't as good as what we'd like to see, I wouldn't put it that way, that 
then it becomes, well, this is a personal attack, or this is insinuating that we're not good at what we do, and we're prideful of what we do, and we're passionate about what we do. So it's that it's that weird dichotomy, that balance, and, and that's really the hardest thing, I believe. I feel like what's emerging out of this is the idea of the confident organization. Yeah, like you have to, I'm going to write that down. You have to have that balance of, I'm willing to say, these are my flaws, but have the confidence to go, you know what, but I can, I can do something about that. That's the magic, yes. Absolutely. Last question. So this podcast, we talk a lot about OKRs. We even talked about it today, which is wonderful. Where do you think the future is headed in terms of the OKR space? I think the framework is fantastic. You have to have it to get anything done. And I think people use it every day and don't even consciously think about it in their own personal lives. You, you, you make OKRs all the time. But I think the biggest challenge is that, and I'll, I'll allude to what I said earlier, people get hung up on the terminology. And they have varying definitions. We had one client that was trying to standardize their terminology across the entire organization. And they had some lengthy 12 page document about words and definitions. Like a goal is this and an objective is this and a supporting such and such is this. And it was, it was like a dictionary. I need to be a PhD in order to accomplish successful things in that organization. Right. And, and the explanations were so detailed and convoluted. And the nuances between them were so subtle. Call this A or B. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So I think the challenge with OKRs is that I think people get hung up on terminology, whether it's their own company or just the what's the industry standard for this and, and have debates about that, what's best practice. It doesn't matter. And then secondly, I think you hear the word objective, you hear the word key result. And I think that that can be polarizing, right? My objective, if I don't achieve my objective, what does that mean? Uh, if I don't achieve this key result, the key result, what does that mean? So it's people, right? And it's language and it's how they're framed in an organization that either can be intimidating or incredibly utilitarian. So the future is hopefully an environment where people are achieving these things and the way that you're thinking about, why don't we create organizations that are really about the customer and what they need to accomplish? Why don't we create the ways for us to be successful and make it so that our employees can actually get there? Yeah, because really that's all they want. Yeah, <laughs> I think we agree there. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Andrea. It's been really great having you as a guest. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we invite you to join the Dreams with Deadlines community. Dreams with Deadlines is a global network of ambitious business leaders and innovators who are passionate about using OKRs and agile practices to build high-performing cultures, achieve bold goals, and influence our world for the better. Learn more and join us at dwd.community.